Welcome to the latest edition of Norton Rose Fulbright's Regulation Tomorrow podcast, where we explore the latest developments in risk and regulation in the financial services sector. I'm Albert Wetherill, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Herbst and Hannah Meekin, both of whom are partners in our London financial services team. Our focus today is on the UK government's newly announced financial services and markets bill, which was introduced in the House of Commons on the 20th of July, specifically the provisions of the bill that relate to critical third parties. Now, before we dive into those provisions in more detail, Jonathan, could you perhaps give our listeners a very brief overview of the bill and what it's trying to achieve? Thanks, Albert. Hello, everybody. And we're actually, the good news is we're doing an initial separate podcast on the bill and follow-ups, but let me just give you five big headlines. Firstly, there's a lot of material around the balance of powers between the Treasury and the regulators and how that works. Secondly, there are some fairly well-trailed areas, in particular the MIFID package of reforms. Thirdly, and this is really interesting, new areas of regulation, in particular the new designated activities regime and the financial promotions gateway and on crypto. Uh, Fourth, there's quite a lot of material around uh, regulation of markets infrastructure. And finally, I call it the devil in the detail piece. Uh, There are some real kind of little twists in the tail, in particular discipline in relation to ex-authorised persons. So that's all to watch for in our separate podcast. That's great. Thanks, Jonathan. And clearly there's a lot to unpack uh, in this bill. And the critical third parties provisions are a significant component of that bill. So, Hannah, are you able to tell us what a critical third party is and who determines that? Yes, indeed. So the potential pool of critical third parties is quite broad because it's really anyone who provides services to one or more firms that are authorised by the FCA or the PRA or financial market infrastructures, such as exchanges, central counterparties and payment system operators. But in reality, I think it will be a much smaller subset of that pool um, that Treasury, HM Treasury would have the ability to designate as being critical. And the situation, the conditions for criticality are essentially that if a failure in or disruption to the provision of the services that the third party provides to firms and FMIs, could threaten the stability of or competence in the financial system of the UK, then that's when they could be designated as critical by HM Treasury. So the um, the Bank of England and the FCA have published a discussion paper looking at this all in a bit more detail. And they say that we should interpret disruption and the concept of services here quite broadly to include anything that's relevant to firms and FMI's operations. So obvious candidates might be technology providers such as cloud service providers, but it could also include companies that provide claims management services to insurers. And the kind of types of um, CTPs could evolve over time to include, for example, those that provide artificial intelligence or machine learning models. So it would potentially be a dynamic regime. Um, But the Bank of England and the FCA also indicate that it's not intended that there'll necessarily be very many uh, critical third parties. Um, So it's likely to be a a fairly small percentage of the total number of third parties that provide services to firms and FMIs, um, because the designation idea is supposed to identify those whose failure or disruption could have an impact on the ability of the regulators 
um, to meet their their objectives in terms of financial stability, market integrity, and consumer protection. And um, just quickly in terms of process, the idea is that Treasury would designate these third parties through secondary legislation, um, taking into account the relevant criteria that they need to follow that we've just discussed, um, and following consultation with the supervisory authorities and other relevant bodies. So those supervisory authorities like the PRA and the FCA could proactively recommend certain third parties to be designated as critical um, on the basis of their analysis and what they see, who they see firms using. Um, and they could take into account things like, for example, the level of concentration in terms of the number of firms and FMIs using those service providers, uh, the potential impact of disruption that they could cause and the materiality of the services that they provide to firms and FMIs. Great, thanks, Hannah. That's super helpful. I mean, one of the interesting elements of this, given the examples of the types of firms we think could be caught that you mentioned there, is that I think some of those firms, particularly the technology providers, are organisations who may not typically be subject to regulation, at least you know, financial services regulation. Now, based on the contents of the bill, we're expecting amendments to the FCA and the PRA rules addressing those critical third parties, and that will include you know, imposing certain duties on those providers. Whilst I think the bill clearly provides a framework for the relevant regulators to exercise their statutory powers, information gathering, powers of direction under FISMA against these critical third parties. Um, Jonathan, what do you think critical third parties should be doing at this moment in time to prepare for this new future? Sure. So I think there are probably three things. Uh, the first is, you know, just keep a close eye on it. I mean, the bill is going to go through Parliament and, you know, we're then going to have secondary legislation. This is clearly going to gather steam over the next few months. So, you know, just fact finding, number one. Number two, and I think this won't be for everybody, but certain of the players will wish to lobby. Uh, either individually or collectively. I think clearly there's a lot to play for, particularly in the House of Lords. I think this, this will be uh, scrutinised quite carefully. And thirdly, and this is obviously something to flag at board level and governance level now, but we'll, we'll uh, gather pace as we get more towards, you know, knowing the timings and the detail, you know, just think about what implementation looks like. And the one comment I'd make on that is clearly the read across to the sorts of systems of controls and documentation that financial institutions have. That's what you know, service providers are going to need to think about. And that may be slightly alien in some cases to the culture. So I think there's going to be a cultural read across and a need for compliance implementation. So a bit of a time plan there on those areas. That's great. I mean, now changing tracks slightly to the policy objectives behind these particular provisions, we've seen the regulators just in the UK, but also more broadly, talk recently about this sort of same risk, same regulatory outcome principle, you know, whereby regulation is focused on the systemic risk posed by a particular party, rather than it focusing on the legal or technological form of that party. Now, Hannah, do you see some of that policy supporting the proposals in this bill in relation to critical third parties? Yes, I mean, I suppose the proposed regime is a kind of an aspect of that principle. Um, the regulators have been increasingly focusing on operational resilience, outsourcing third party risk management and imposing you know, quite, quite uh, significant um, and strict obligations on firms in those areas. 
But ultimately, firms are relying more and more on third parties that are outside the current regulatory perimeter. And there is a concern that if they aren't subject to the same standards themselves, then those third party service providers could um, essentially undermine the, the robustness of the regime. Um, I mean, and think also in terms of this principle, it's quite interesting that in the, um, the Bank of England and the FCA paper, they propose a kind of exemption in the sense that, as you said earlier, Albert, they don't seem to intend to recommend service providers that are already subject to regulation in relation to the provision of their services, at least where the regulators have the ability to impose equivalent requirements on their resilience already. So the regime really, this new regime really does seem to be about firms that are outside the current regulatory regime. And I think the other important thing to note is that this this regime isn't intended to change anything, any of the obligations that firms and FMIs are already subject to. So it, it would still, it still will be the case that firms and FMIs are primarily responsible and ultimately accountable for managing the risks to their resilience that arise from their relationships with third parties. All that's happening here is that we're also going to be imposing certain obligations on certain um, third parties. It's clear then that we're set for a quite major shakeup in our regulatory perimeter and then how that is applied across all elements of our financial services landscape and not just to the authorised firms that operate within that landscape. And Jonathan, one last take from you. What do you think these provisions say about the direction of UK financial services regulation? I mean, is this the beginning of an expansion of our regulatory framework to non-financial institutions more broadly? Yeah, it's a really great question. I, I think uh, two things. Number one, definitely what I would describe as the original purity of the act is no longer there. I, you know, when, when FISMA was created, it was very clear. Treasury set the perimeter, the regulators, as it was the FSA then, but then FCA and PRA regulated people within that perimeter. That is That is no longer the case. You've got a number of different examples in which you know, varieties of non-regulated entity will be subject to direct rules. Uh, you know, you've got certain aspects of the um, parent co-regime in relation to IFPR. You will now have the designated activities regime, which you know will create a sort of slightly hybrid model. And you've got what we've been discussing today. So that is definitely the case. I think the second issue, which is a slightly more complicated one, is you know what that means for policy and I think Hannah hit it a moment ago which is it's really around looking at the overall risks to the economy so to take the example of the designated activities regime you know it's not quite clear yet but the extent to which end user corporates that do derivatives um, derivatives trading might have certain aspects of regulation imposed not not licensing critically but certain aspects of rules that's a really key question so I think we're in a slightly new world and we're just going to have to sort of roll with it and see where it goes. Thanks, Jonathan. I mean, thank you both very much for those responses. And there's clearly a lot of food for thought here for the industry. That's all we have time for today. So thank you to our listeners for joining us. Uh, and we'd remind you that this is one of a series of podcasts on the bill and its various elements. And you can find other episodes in this series on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining and we'll see you next time. <laughs>